And then from Matthew 11. Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 3. There is one change to the liturgy as we have it in the sheet, and it impacts, doesn't impact you and me, but our pianist. The last hymn will be hymn 81, okay? You okay with that? You can veto it if you like. <laughs> that happened before, but... <laughs> In my first congregation, I sometimes I had an organist who sometimes would phone back a half hour after I gave him the liturgy and said, oh, I can't play this one and that one, so let's change it. So, and I did. What can you do? I wasn't going to play. I can't play. So, Anyway, Isaiah 42. Verse 1, hear the word of God. Behold my servant whom I uphold. These are considered the suffering servant passages of Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And then going to Isaiah 53, which is still part of the suffering servant. And this is these are famous words. 1 to 7. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, (coughs) a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And then thirdly, we'd like to turn to Matthew chapter 11. Verse 20. And we'll read to the end of this chapter Matthew 11 verse 20 the word of God then he our Lord Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent woe to you Chorazin woe to you Bethsaida for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. 
And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father, the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of God. We pause there, we sing from a psalm on which the beatitude, blessed are the meek, is also based. Psalm 37, stanzas 2 and 5. Our text then for this afternoon, the simply the words, and you will find rest for your, no, sorry, let me get this right, better know what I'm preaching, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, for I 
and gentle and lowly in heart. Those eight words. After the proclamation of God's word, we'll praise God with the words of, May the mind of Christ my Savior, the alternate hymn. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, among all the words that our Lord Jesus has passed on to the church, you have to have an eye for the special nature of these eight words. In his recent and popular book, Gentle and Lowly, coincidentally, providentially, Jordan might not know this, but later this, after the service, he'll get a copy of this book if he doesn't have one already. But uh, anyway, uh, Gentle and Lowly, uh, Dane Ortland passes on what uh, Charles Spurgeon already said, that in all the 89 chapters of the four Gospels, there's only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. Of course, there are many places, especially in John's Gospel, where he uses the word I, especially the, the famous passages, I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd, I am the door, I am the, all these passages. But in all of those, the impact has more to do with his mission than with his person. He tells us more about why he's come than about who he is. But here, he's so very personal. Today, we'd say he's very vulnerable. He says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Delightful words, says Ortland in that book, in the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls the back the veil and lets us peer into the core of who he is, we are not told that he is austere and demanding in heart. We are not told that he is exalted and dignified in heart. We are not even told that he's joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim that is, is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. But what we'd like to see this afternoon is, is the great significance of these words. In this passage, in Matthew's Gospel, in the New Testament, and hence in your life, and in Jordan's life, and in my life. It's a wonderful thing to behold the person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but words like these have further impact because we again and again are urged, are we not, to become like Him. Is not one of our greatest missions in life to be Christ-like. Well, if this is who Jesus is, obviously we must be like this. The sons and daughters of our Father by the Spirit are to resemble the eldest and the best son of all. God's Word comes to you under this theme. As is the head, so is the body. Gentle and secondly, lowly in heart. Brothers and sisters, when our Lord Jesus says He is gentle, what does He mean? Well, the words used often for things, for animals, for people. In the literature of the time, if you go beyond the biblical literature, it's used of uh, a, a judge who is lenient in judgment, a man who is noble, a sage who remains meek in the face of insults, and a, and a king who is kind in his rule. It's a word that presumes in such a person there is no cruelty and little or no anger. 
It's often found in the Psalms where it references the words lowly and, and humble and, and, and those characterized by a, a gentle spirit. And so when our Lord Jesus uses this word of himself, he's talking not only about his actions, but also about his person. He's the one who speaks the kind and humble words of the Sermon on the Mount. How can he say, blessed are the meek, if he's not meek himself? And you and I and the Pharisees, we can say something and not necessarily be exactly like that. But with the Lord Jesus, that doesn't happen. He measures up to the very things he says and the very things he requires. You can read, for example, his wonderful words in John 14, verse, verse 15, 16. Doesn't it take this kind of person, gentle, lowly in heart, to say those kind of things? This is the evening of his death, and he doesn't talk about himself and his death. He just has a heart for his disciples and for the future of the church, and he, he talks about sacrifice and about love and about who is he? He's the God. He's the Son who displays the Father. And when the Father really displays Himself, I can think of one special passage when he, Moses is bleeding with Him to, uh, to reveal Himself. And, and Moses wants to see Him, but God says, you can't see me, but He's going to reveal Himself. And He just says, I'm the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. The Old Testament equivalent, gentle and lowly. The Son is like the Father. It's actually very striking that it's Matthew's Gospel that talks about Him as gentle and lowly. And because Matthew, if you think of what's the number one theme of Matthew's Gospel, it's the fact that Jesus is the King. We're given the genealogy in the first chapter because the point of the genealogy is if Israel was in control of its, of, of its land and its country, Joseph would be king. It would be King Joseph on the throne. And the point is, through Joseph, it's King Jesus. King Jesus. The theme of kingship is all over Matthew's gospel. The gospel, the, 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 the number 14 in, in the genealogy of the first chapter, the number of David is at the forefront. All of that has to do with him. David, he's the fulfillment of the son of David. The Sermon on the Mount is about the proclamation of the royal reign of the king. The parables are about his kingship. So you wonder, what kind of king will he be? In our day, we know of cruel tyrants and awful kings. And uh, Will he be that kind of a king? Here's your answer. And you get the answer, especially when you think about another passage. Uh, chapter 21, it's the triumphal entry of, of Jesus the King into the royal city, the city of David, Jerusalem. And how does He come? He comes not as you would expect of a king on a horse. Any Roman who would come into town as a, as a king would come riding on a horse. But He comes riding on a donkey. Why a donkey? One thing, it's a fulfillment of Zechariah 9. The point of Zechariah and of Matthew is to contrast the warlike and the peaceful. Those bent on war and victory come on a horse, but those who come on a mission of peace and they ride on a donkey. And so Jesus in Matthew 21 instructs two disciples to get a very specific animal and it's got to be that a donkey and it's got to be that specific donkey. And 
If, there, if we miss the symbolism, well, then we miss the quotation of Zechariah 9 in, in Matthew 21. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and, and riding on a donkey. The two go side by side. Gentle and riding on a donkey. It answers, that's the kind of king we have. The rule of this king will be characterized not by force or war. He will bring about salvation in a peaceful and gentle manner. He will be at the forefront of the battle. He will be the one who is slain in battle. Actually, there's another contrast implied in the words. Because notice the first word is for. I always taught my students when it says for, you've got to ask what it's there for. He's stating a reason. He's saying, you can come to me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You can actually learn from me because I'm a gentle and lowly in heart kind of teacher. That's the second theme of Matthew's gospel. He's teaching his disciples. Jesus in, in Matthew's gospel, in the whole gospel period, is like a rabbi in those Jewish days who would teach his students. The students would follow and there would be this oral tradition that would be passed on from the rabbi to the students. That's, that's Jesus with his disciples. They're his students. And, 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 and so the, that's the theme here as well. The second, the second theme of Matthew's gospel. And, and, he, and he says that because he says, take my yoke upon you. What's the yoke? The yoke is the yoke of discipleship. The yoke is the yoke of teaching. Jesus clarifies that because he says right after that, and learn from me. He's clarifying that which is mysterious. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And you can learn from me as a kind and gentle rabbi. Not all teachers are kind and gentle. They should be today, but they're not always. But this teacher is. You can learn from him because he's gentle and lowly in heart. And that's, of course, contrast with those other teachers that Matthew's always talking about. The Pharisees. Think of Matthew 23, verse 4, one of, one of, the, one of the chapters where the gloves come off and, and between Jesus and, and the Pharisees is Matthew 23. Uh, and he says of the Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens and hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders. Well, Jesus doesn't do that. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. You can take His yoke upon you because He is gentle and lowly in heart. And you see a further illustration in that, actually, because normally, I mean, it's a warm afternoon, so we didn't do it this afternoon. Usually I read from chapter 12 all the way to 21 as well. Because what's that about? This chat, this, these words of 11, 28 to 30 are about his yoke and his burden. And, 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 and it's, it's opposed to the Pharisees, and it's about rest. You will receive rest. What's the next chapter about? It's about rest. Sabbath rest. 
At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, 12 verse 1 talks about. And you know what happened. You can read about it later at home. The Pharisees come along with their heavy yokes and burdens, and they said, yeah, but your disciples are doing what's not lawful. It was lawful. It's one of those fence rules that I talked about this morning, or this first service, right? It's one of these fence rules, but they said it's not lawful. It is lawful. Where do you find in, 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 in the books of Moses that you can't do this? And so Jesus corrects them kind of thing. But notice what happens at the end. And then there's this man with a withered hand. And they say, you can't heal on Sunday, on the Sabbath. You can't do that. But Jesus says, it's lawful to do this. The Sabbath is made for man. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And he ends with quoting that passage from Isaiah 42. And in verse 20, he says, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. Snuff out. He will not quench. A bruised reed he will not break. Someone who is weak he will not destroy. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Someone who is like a dying fire he will not eliminate. Why not? Because he's gentle and lowly in heart. This is not his way. It doesn't mean, by the way, that Jesus is some kind of pushover who never becomes angry or never expresses disapproval. We read from Matthew 11 where Jesus pronounces his judgment on Chorazin and Bethsaida. And you can read more about that in Matthew 23 where the gloves come off or John 8. But there is no anger that goes more noticed than when a person who is usually mild and gentle finally displays it. The anger of an enemy is one thing, but the anger of one who loves you deep spites, bites deep, and stops us in our tracks. But the point is, if ever there was a message about grace, the grace of God in the Gospels, here it is. In the face of cruel tyrants and onerous teachers, the Lord Jesus stands out. All the weak and weary and burdened need to do is come to Him. It's all we need to do. This is the Gospel of grace. Rest will then be ours, and we can, not only because His yoke is easy, His understanding of the law, expectations of God, is so much more generous. But we can because... He's gentle and lowly in heart. As Ortland said, his yoke is kind, his burden is light. That is, his yoke is a non-yoke, his burden is a non-burden. What helium does to a balloon, Jesus' yoke does to his followers. We are buoyed along in life by his endless gentleness and supremely accessible lowliness. He doesn't simply meet us at our place of need. He lives in our place of need. He never tires of sweeping us into his tender embrace. It is his very heart. And if you're still not convinced, I, I, I would spend some time going through the Easter stories. What do you see? And again, the spring when preached on Easter stories. What are all these stories? Jesus is the gentle and lowly pastor who in the Easter stories is making sure that his disciples who are messed up because of, because of the Good Friday, because of the events of the cross, they're all over the place. Peter's denied him. Judas is gone. And the disciples are all over the place. They're hurting. They don't know what's going on. And Jesus is just the pastor who, who brings them back together one by one. Thomas, Thomas wasn't there the first time. Thomas, put your hand here. Put your finger here. 
Peter is all messed. He, he denied Jesus with cursing and all kinds of words. And he, it's interesting in the Gospels, there are three times when Peter comes forth and I will do this, I won't do that. And three times he falls and the last one is the worst. And Jesus just comes and says, Peter, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? You know that I love you. Jesus is the gentle, lowly pastor who does what all pastors have to do. Be kind and gentle and embrace your people. Love them with the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. And don't you forget the same gentle Jesus you read Hebrews, it's sort of saying, you know, you can have access to Jesus today because He sits in the heavens above. You can access the grace of God in the heavens. The, the throne of God has become the throne of grace. Why? Because Jesus is a faithful high priest. Jesus is merciful. Jesus has gone to the, to the tree of the cross. You can almost hear Hebrews saying, Jesus, our high priest today, is gentle and lowly in heart. Tell him what your problems are. He knows about them anyway. He knows what they are. Don't hide. You can't hide from him. Just tell him and talk to him. That's what he wants. That's what God always wanted. He didn't want kids who just would, would follow things by ritual. He wanted kids who would give them his heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Well, talk to the Lord Jesus about your struggles and your problems. And he will... Bless you in so many ways. But the major point to realize, sorry, you haven't got there yet, is not only that he is like this, his mission is to make us like this. It's not just a character trait that we are supposed to behold and admire and say, oh, I wish I was like that. This is a character trait that every one of the children of God are, are to receive in Christ and are to cultivate and develop. The fact is, we, we, we probably all have somewhat of a, a, a nice side and a not-so-nice side, an ugly side, perhaps we could say. But if we're in Christ, we can't be content to be like that. You can't say, well, that's just the way I am. Aren't you a new person in Christ? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. In Christ, a new me has come into being. We are to be what we are in Christ Wherever we are, whatever our situation, we must be like this. Very strikingly, Paul in 2 Corinthians 10 entreats the Corinthians with these words. He says, I, Paul, appeal to you with the kindness and gentleness of Christ. He doesn't say, I, I come to you with my own kindness and gentleness. What's that good for? But the gentleness and kindness of Christ has become his and he uses that in his pastoral ministry. It's because Christ is living in Paul, shaping him, forming him, as he does with all his people. It is no longer I who live, says Paul, but Christ who lives in me. A similar note is sounded in Philippians 1 verse 8 where Paul says he longs for the Philippians not just with his own affection, but with the affection and the tender compassion of Jesus Christ. The affection, the tender compassion. Don't you hear the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ coming up? 
And that notion that that which characterizes Christ should characterize us all is all over the place. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit, is his, his mission is to make us more like Christ. Remember, He is the Spirit of adoption. He makes us better sons and daughters of God. We talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Fruits of the Spirit are not things you can drum up and say, now I'm going to be like this. No, they're fruits of the Spirit. It's fruits of the Spirit of Christ. This is Christ working in you to make you like this. And the fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruits of the Spirit, says Paul to the Galatians, is gentleness. These fruits are not something that you will manage to produce. Look at the list. Will you be able to do this yourself? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This, These characterize the new you, the new me. They are not fruits of your new resolve. They're not a product of some New Year's resolution. They are fruits of the Spirit of Christ in you. And so, so too for, for Jordan when he professes his faith. It doesn't stop there. It's got to continue there as you develop these very fruits. Paul says to the Thessalonians, be like that. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of our own children. There are office bearers who come with all this might. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother. 1 Timothy 3, Paul says that every office bearer ought to be not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. To Titus, he says that all believers need to be told to avoid quarreling. Just stop it and to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. It's the new you. James writes about the meekness of wisdom and says that that wisdom that comes from above is is pure, peace-loving, gentle, and open to reason. And then there are pictures in the New Testament of what it actually means practically to be gentle. Think of what Paul says of husbands in Ephesians 5. Ever wonder why men are referred to as gentlemen? Maybe because we're supposed to be gentle men. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her. In marriage, in the family, the value of love and gentleness is simply inestimable. They say, here, now and then you read it, they say, there's not too many old men who stand around saying, you know, I, I, I wish I spent more time in the office in the years past. No, usually it's the opposite. The regret is they spent too much time in the office. They didn't spend t- enough time at home and in their marriage and with their children. I'm convicted by that myself. But I'm also convicted by something else. There aren't too many old men who, who in their old age say, you know, I, I, I should have been more forceful and more angry and more, more, more demanding in those days. No, no. Usually we realize there were critical moments when gentleness would have gone a lot, went long, a lot farther than all of that. 
Everyone can call to mind events, encounters, relationships, and times when he or she wishes he or she had been more gentle, if only. The truth is, in the brokenness of our world, there is more to be gained by cultivating the gentle side of a person's character than any other. It doesn't deny the need for men to be leaders and leaders with a purpose and with a vision and to be insistent at times, but it's not a dictatorial leadership of the powerful. It's the loving leadership of a person who has learned spades about compassion and gentleness. If the world is not to be run by bossy dictators, but by loving servants, so is the church. We're all servants. And so is the family. The father, the husband, is just the biggest servant of all. It's the same rule as the rule of the Gospels. I have not come to be served, but to serve. And lest we think that this only applies to the men, then think of what Peter says to the women, to the wives of Asia Minor. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. It's like a woman walking up to her jewelry box. Look at all those jewels. She picks one out very carefully and puts it on. Sister husband, how does that look? Ah, here. The best jewel you can pick out of that jewelry box is the jewel of a gentle and quiet spirit. Which in God's sight, isn't that important? In God's sight, that is very precious. You are who you need to be and you know it's not your husband or your, your boyfriend, but it's your God who is pleased because this is the best jewel of all. You could say it all flows out of those first Beatitudes. It's a similar note. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Already at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus makes it clear, these will be the characteristics of those bought with my blood and filled with my spirit. Ortland suggests in his book that the word Jesus, the word, the fact that Jesus is gentle means he's accessible. I don't think that's what it means. Gentle doesn't mean he's accessible. But the result of being gentle is that you are more accessible. You're more accessible in, 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 in marriage, in, in, in the family, in, in parenting, in grandparenting, in, if you're gentle, you're more accessible as an office bearer. Jesus is so accessible as a high priest because he's so gentle. Come to me, he says, because I am gentle and lowly in heart. We need not fear him. This Jesus is the very one in the heavens today to whom we pray. But the Lord Jesus refers to himself not only as gentle, but also as lowly in heart. Some people think it's gentle in heart and lowly in heart, and it's compressed and gentle and lowly in heart. Well, if anybody here can read Greek, then look at the word order in Greek, and you can see very clearly, I am gentle is over here, and then later it says, and lowly in heart. What does that mean? 
The word lowly suggests someone who is already humbled and, and perhaps also willing to be humbled even more. The same word is used of the Nile River, which has a whole system of locks, you know, like you have in some rivers. At least we have that in Ontario, some locks, and they keep on going lower and lower. Jesus is lowly already, but he's going to go lower. This is Matthew 11. By the time you get to Matthew 27, and he's gone really low. I mean, right to the bottom, he's gone to the tree of the cross, the most despicable death, especially in, in the eyes of, of the Romans. It's wonderful to think of it. This is our Lord Jesus, the Son of God, the one who eternally was with God. And he's, he's come into this world. He's become one of us. And he says these words. And he's going to get, he's going to get abused by the scribes and the Pharisees and by the, the rulers. And he takes it all because he's a man on a mission. What would have come of the gospel? What would have come of your salvation, my salvation, if he was not like this? He hasn't come to be served. He hasn't come to be served, but to serve. To serve even all the way to the tree of the cross. This is His nature. This is what He's all about. So what does it do? If we're to become like this, it doesn't mean we all have to die, but it means we all need to be humble. We all need to be lowly in heart. Paul is forever talking about this. Whether we sit in the pew or climb the pulpit, regardless of your education, regardless of your wealth, regardless of your status, I don't care. God doesn't care about that. This is the nature of the people of God, individually and collectively. The Apostle Paul understood his own ministry to be one just of following the Lord Jesus in humble service wherever that goes. In the book of Acts, he says, I serve the Lord with great humility, with all lowliness of mind and with tears. He's content to be a tent maker. He's a tent. He's content even not to take a salary for the cause of the gospel, for the cause of the furtherance of the kingdom. And then he goes on and he, he exhorts us all and to live humbly. And he says to the Romans, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of lowly position. Do not be conceited. He urges the Ephesians, be completely humble. Completely humble. Not just partly, but completely humble. And gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. James says believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. And then think of Peter. Read Peter. Look at Peter in the Gospels. He's always this guy who opens his mouth to change feet. But, but, but Peter, in, in, in his letter, he's learned something. He's learned how, about how, to be, how to be an apostle, how to be a leader in the church. And here's a wonderful contrast. Because what does he say to the office bearers? He draws out of his own experience and says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. You want God's favor? You want God's blessing? Come down from your high horse. He is God and you are not.
To the whole congregation, Peter says, finally all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tender-hearted, and keep a humble attitude. And here's James. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's the same tune as Peter sings. So humble yourselves, therefore, before God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you, says James. Come close to God, and he will come close to you. So much of this rests on the fact that if we are in Christ, then Christ is in us, and we are in him, and then we become like him. A family resemblance develops. The brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ become like our Lord himself by the Spirit of God, lowly, humble in heart. And Jordan, this is what characterizes your mission, to be like that all the days of your life. May we grow in this, grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and be even as He is. Amen. Let us now profess our Catholic undoubted Christian faith with the words of hymn one.
We're going to read now from the form for the public profession of faith, as we find that on page 602 and 603. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank the Lord our God for the grace given us by adopting us to be his children and receiving us into his covenant. We acknowledge his love and power by which he instills in his children the desire publicly to profess their faith in him in the presence of his holy church so that they may receive admission to the Holy Supper. Jordan, can I invite you to come forward and to come on up here and to face the congregation? It's not that fearful, it's okay. (laughs) Jordan, since you have now come here to make this profession before God and his holy church, we ask you hereby to answer sincerely the following questions and then receive a result admission to the Holy Supper. First, do you acknowledge wholeheartedly believe the doctrine of the Word of God summarized in the confessions taught here in this Christian church? Do you promise by the grace of God steadfastly to continue in this doctrine in life and death, rejecting all heresies and errors conflicting with God's Word? Second, do you acknowledge God's covenant promises which have been signified and sealed to you in your baptism? Do you truly detest and humble yourself before God because of your sins and seek your life outside of yourself in Jesus Christ? Thirdly, do you declare that you love the Lord your God and that it is your heartfelt desire to serve him according to his word, to forsake the world, and to crucify your old nature. Fourth, do you firmly resolve to commit your whole life to the Lord's service as a living member of his church? Do you promise to submit willingly to the uh, admonition and discipline of the church if it should happen? And may God graciously prevent it that you become delinquent either in doctrine or in conduct. Jordan, Kenneth, Crabbendam, what is your answer? I do. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us now rise together and sing Psalm 118, stanza 8.
Let us pray together. Father in heaven, almighty, glorious God, we thank and praise your name.